But it doesn't matter how good I preach. Souls won't get transformed unless the Spirit of God is moving. doesn't matter how good I preach. Souls won't get saved. doesn't matter how good I preach. People won't come in that door unless Jesus draws them. And it doesn't matter how good you guys believe in Jesus. It doesn't, it, if, if the Spirit of God, if you guys aren't living in a life of prayer, the Spirit of God will not be active in your life. And if you wonder why every time you have a chat to a friend and tell them about Jesus, they don't want a bar of him, then you, can, you can't blame and point the finger at that person and say, you've got such a hardened heart. Point the finger at yourself. Say, if only the Spirit of God was active in my life at a greater level, that guy would, or that girl would have been saved. So prayerlessness is killing the church. Prayerlessness is killing this church. But it could grow so powerfully if we just understood the importance of prayer and communing with God. Amen. something I want to share with you. It's from a book that I got uh, given to me from uh, Elizabeth, and it's a book by Jim Simbala. If you can see that, it's called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And there's something I just want to read from it, because I really related to it, like as in where we're at as a church. It, it came, uh, he was speaking to me in a sense very, very personally in this and to all of us because he was at a similar position. He was at an, a point, not only was the numbers that low that, you know, 10 people in the church sort of thing, or very, very low numbers, but also the, the building was falling apart and they couldn't afford to do any kind of maintenance and they were defaulting on their, I think they had a loan or a rent or whatever, they were defaulting, so they were even not far off getting booted out of the building. And he came to a point because he was sort of placed in this uh, position of pastoring this church nearly against his will. But I'm just going to read from where he says he, he's on a ship. He, he ended up very, very ill. And he ended up having to take some time off and move from the cold area that he was living in in New York to a warmer climate. And he, was, he went out onto a boat, on a fishing boat, with people fishing. But he had no concept of fishing. He just wanted to really seek God. And he said this. He, he goes off by himself. And he goes, Lord, I have no idea how to be a successful pastor. No idea. That, I related to that straight away. And he prayed that softly out there on the water. I haven't been trained. All I know is that Carol and I, that's his wife, are working in the middle of New York City with people dying on every side, overdosing from heroin, consumed by materialism and all the rest. And then he said, if the gospel is so powerful, and he couldn't finish that sentence. He said, I couldn't finish the sentence. Tears were choking him. Fortunately, the others on the boat were too far away to notice as they studied their lives in the blue-green water. So no one even noticed that this was going on. Then quietly but forcefully, in words heard not with my ear but deep within my spirit, I sensed God speaking. And earlier he said it was one of the first times he heard the audible voice of God and he said if you and your wife will lead my people to pray 
If you and my, your wife will lead my people to pray and call upon my name, you will never lack for something fresh to preach. I will supply all your needs, both for the church and for your family, and you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowds I will send in response. And when he heard that, he was overwhelmed with tears because he, he couldn't believe it. God spoke to him and said, if you and your wife will lead my people to pray and call on my name, that's, that's the difference that he had to do. That's what he had to achieve in his church. So I'm just going to read what happened after that. He come back from, uh, from Florida and, and someone said, did you have a good rest in Florida? How's your cough? I told them my cough was much better, but inside I couldn't wait to tell them something far more important. Early in the service, I said, brothers and sisters, I really feel that I've heard from God about the future of our church. While I was away, I was calling out to God to help us, to help me. Understand what he wants most from us, and I believe I've heard the answer. It's not fancy or profound or spectacular, but I want you to say to you today with all seriousness that I can muster, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of our church. The prayer meeting will be the barometer. What happens, and he has a prayer meeting on a Tuesday night, we can change that for us. What happens on a Wednesday night will be the gauge by which we will judge success or failure because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. That will be the measure. So what happens on Wednesday night will determine everything about this church, where it goes from here. And when I read these words, I was touched by the power of God because I'm like thinking, because I was at, I'm, I'm getting, you know, you, you get close to the end of your tether, you know what I mean? You get to the point where you're just sort of like, God, if you don't do something, if you don't build the church, if you don't start drawing people to come and hear the messages, then what are we doing? What are we doing this for? You know what I mean? We need to see God move. That's the only reason this church exists. I never... I, I, I was given the vision for this church so that we could have a revival that would sweep over Adelaide. That's what church is for. If you believe in Jesus Christ, isn't that what you want? Don't you want people to come to believe in Jesus Christ also? Don't you want people to find your Lord and get saved so that they can be saved on that day when they face him on judgment? That's what we're for. That's what it's here for. So if we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to bring people that need Jesus to himself, to pour out his spirit among us. But if we don't call upon the Lord, he's promised nothing. If we don't call on the Lord, there's no promises about that. It doesn't say, if you don't call on me, you're going to have a full church. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything of the sort. It says, unless we call on the Lord. It's as simple as that. No matter what I preach, and this is how I feel, 
or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend upon our times of prayer. Our future, the future of this church will depend on our times of prayer. Because you know what, I've, you know, I feel that some of the best sermons I've ever preached have been the last few weeks. But it doesn't matter how good I preach, souls won't get transformed unless the Spirit of God is moving. doesn't matter how good I preach, souls won't get saved. doesn't matter how good I preach, people won't come in that door unless Jesus draws them. And it doesn't matter how good you guys believe in Jesus. It doesn't, it, if, if the Spirit of God, if you guys aren't living in a life of prayer, the Spirit of God will not be active in your life. And if you wonder why every time you have a chat to a friend and tell them about Jesus, they don't want a bar of him, then you, can, you can't blame and point the finger at that person and say, you've got such a hardened heart. You point the finger at yourself. Say, if only the Spirit of God was active in my life at a greater level, that guy would, or that girl would have been saved. So prayerlessness is killing the church. Prayerlessness is killing this church. But it could grow so powerfully if we just understood the importance of prayer and communing with God. Amen. And then he said this, this is the engine which will drive the church. The, the, the prayer meeting is the engine of the church. That's where it all happens. I'm sick of this little two-cylinder, one-cylinder thing we've got. I want a V8. You know what I mean? Turbo, yeah. Crossflow, whatever. Else. I don't know all these names of engines and stuff. Crossflow was my old Cortina when I was a kid. Anyway, it used to go pretty quick too. And he goes, yes, I want you to keep coming on Sundays because don't want everyone showing up on Wednesday and then not showing up on Sunday because that would defeat the whole purpose, wouldn't it? See, there'll be power on Sunday if we show up on Wednesday and pray for power on Sunday. You know what I mean? It all determined by Wednesday. We only have two meetings in this church. And, and Wednesday... I'm believing, will be as packed and with passionate prayers as, as we have on a Sunday. And you watch, if everyone here was on at Wednesday, then next Sunday, I believe God will send more. He's, he, it's all about faithfulness. God watches faithfulness. God's very interested in that. So at that time, there was a minister from Australia happened to be there. That's interesting, isn't it? A minister from Australia, or perhaps it was New Zealand. <laughs> Chips. Yeah. A minister from Australia or, um, happened to be present that morning, a rare occurrence. I uh, introduced him and invited him to say a few words. He walked to the front and just made one comment. And he goes, I heard what your pastor said. Here's something to think about. You can tell how popular a church is by who comes Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the pastor evangelist is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meeting. That's critical. When I read that, that really, really hit me. Because do you know, as a pastor, there's many a Wednesday night that you're tired, you're working, you're in the, because I work right up till 7 o'clock and I pretty well run inside and Vina comes with me now, I grab Vina and say, let's go. 
we have to go. Do you know how many times I'm weary working and I just get so tempted to send out a group text to everyone in the church and say, guys, it's, let's blow it off. Do you know how, many, how easy it is to do that? And it would just give me the night off. But lately I've been going, no way, man. No way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure this happens. You know, I'm committed to seeing the growth of this church. I'm committed to you guys. I want to see Jesus move. So Wednesday, to me, is the most important time to see Jesus move. Because when we show up on Wednesday nights, we're showing up to meet with Jesus. That's what it's all about. Because who knows, you know, who's ever, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but you can be in the midst of a prayer meeting and you're sort of like, you know what I mean? Come on, come on, it's nearly 8.30, let's go. You know, and you're looking at, gee, it's only 10 past 8, I've got 20 more minutes of this. You know what I mean? Where's our understanding of what is taking place at that time? Where's our understanding of what is occurring in the spiritual realm at that time? So that we can understand from a heavenly perspective that something is moving. And if we're feeling like this is boring me, it's because something has to break. That we need more of Jesus. That we need more prayer. Because if that's how we feel, then Sunday is going to be pretty much like that. We have got a breakthrough every Wednesday night. Amen? Last Wednesday, we had double or more the people that were there the week before. It was a real incredible showing. Like We were like overjoyed, weren't we? And, uh, and we had a time of prayer that it was just absolutely remarkable. And right at the end, we, we broke into this worship that was just absolutely... Who knows what I'm talking about? Was yeah, all of us that were there. It was just amazing, amazing. It sounded too good to be coming from us. It was like angels were joining in and creating this chorus. It was just beautiful, and um, I just felt really, really empowered by that. Who who was with me? You know that God was there, and there was something happening. There's something happening. So I just want to read a few things on. In my announcements to that congregation, uh, sorry, if my announcements to that congregation sound strange and overbearing, consider uh, that it was not a whole lot different from what Charles Spurgeon, the great British pulpiteer, had said in a sermon almost exactly a hundred years before. He said this, the condition of the church, this is Spurgeon, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So if the prayer meeting uh, sorry, so is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among the people. If God be near a church, it must pray. If God is near this church, it will pray. Amen? It's going to be a praying church. And you know what? If you draw close to him, he'll draw close to us. So if God is near us, it's because we're drawing near to him. It's a two-way street. You know, we've got to come to him, he'll come to us. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be the slothfulness in prayer. So if we're slothful in prayer, if it feels like it's just dragging on, dragging on, we've got to, we've got to combat that from a spiritual perspective. 
God likes to see his people shut up to this, shut up meaning in, into this, that there is no hope but in prayer. Herein lies the church's power against the world. The only power we have against the world is prayer. From that day to the presence, present, more than two decades later, there has never been a season of decline in the church. From that day, from the day that they decided we're going to start praying, we're going to start seeing a move of God, and we're going to commit to this, there has never been a decline. That church has grown. It's now a massive, massive church. And it's, it's grown in grace. And by his grace, we have never had a faction rise up and decide to split away. And God has continued to send people who need help. And often I can't even find out how they learned of us. So he's done an incredible job. He went from, I don't know how long it was, it doesn't say how many months or years it was that he struggled, 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 struggled. Then all of a sudden, due to the commitment of the church, there was an incredible change and God started to bless the church. And now on that note, I'm going to bring up something. I'm going to show you a video that I, um, it's an old video, it's back in the 90s. So it's a little bit, I'm hoping you're going to be able to hear it okay. And it's, you'll see that, you know, uh, it's fuzzy sort of footage. But if you can look past that, we might, Luch, if you could just shut that door, that'd be awesome. Great to see you, Louie. Here's the guy that brought me to Jesus many, many years ago. And uh, I'm going to turn this off. You can turn off that camera now, Matthew. I have a friend named Stan Toller who just put out a little book entitled, You Might Be a Preacher If. And I thought I would read a couple of them today to you. You might be a preacher if you've ever received an anonymous U-Haul gift certificate. <laughs> you might be a preacher if you ever dreamed you were preaching only to awaken and discover that you were. You might be a preacher if you find yourself counting people at a sporting event. <laughs> you might be a preacher if you're leading the church into the 21st century, but don't know what you're preaching on Sunday. <laughs> you might be a preacher if you'd rather negotiate with a terrorist than with the church organist. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> you might be a preacher if you ever wanted to wish people Merry Christmas at Easter because that's the next time you're going to see them. <laughs> you might be a preacher. I love this one, especially right after Super Bowl Sunday. You might be a preacher if you secretly wanted the worship team to drench you with Gatorade after a particularly good sermon. <laughs> Oh, you're doing so well today, I'm going to read you a couple more. <laughs> you might be a preacher if instead of getting ticked off, you get grieved in your spirit. <laughs> you might be a preacher if you've ever wanted to give the sound man a little feedback of your own. <laughs> you 
You might be a preacher if you've walked up to a counter in the Dairy Queen and ordered a church split. Uh, and I'm going to give you one more, and the reason I'm giving you this one last is it really leads into where I am, because this one is so close to the truth, it's almost not funny. You might be a preacher if you've ever written a letter of resignation on Monday morning. Been there, done that. I would like to talk to you this morning on the subject, the pastor's most viable player. For 25 years, I had the privilege of pastoring. I love pastors. In the last two years, I've had the privilege of speaking to over 100,000 pastors. I love teaching leadership to them. I love equipping them. And when I teach leadership, I talk a lot about leadership skills. But in the last few months, I sense that God has impressed upon me to talk about leadership in another area that causes more pastors to drop out than any other, and that is in the area of leadership stamina. The ability to keep on keeping on. To hang in there during the tough times. To keep your chin up when things are looking down. And so recently as I was preparing in prayer for our time together today, I sensed that God would want me to speak on the pastor's most valuable player. Who is it? I began to look into my own list of people that have been very valuable in my own ministry in years past, and, and I thought maybe the most valuable player is the giver, the, the person that financially contributes and really helps you over the hump. And I began to think of those who have been so valuable to me in financial help in the local church. I thought about a friend named Bob who was a great giver who one time at knowing a great need in our church gave us 300000 I thought maybe that's the most valuable player in the church. And then I thought, no... In my first church, there was a man by the name of Claude who was a high influencer, and I was just a young pastor, and Claude came alongside of me, and he influenced the church to help me out, and he kind of brought the people together, and he was the leader. Maybe it's the influencer in the church that's the most valuable player. And then I began to think of some of the great supporters that I had, people that came around me and, and just loved me and cared for me and befriended me, people like Jim, who was in my second church was a, a big guy, but also had a big spirit of friendship and love. Then I began to think, well, maybe the most valuable player is that person that you don't really see a lot, but they're just faithful, they're consistent. They can just be counted on every time you need somebody. They're loyal, they're faithful. I thought of a fellow by the name of Brent who literally, knowing the responsibilities I had, would do errands for me one day a week, set a day a week aside just to, to do errands, to give me more time to do the ministry. And he was a faithful guy. Then I thought, no, maybe the most valuable player in the church is the gifted person. The individual that has incredible talents, that just can use the gifts that God has given them and bless the entire church. And I began to think of gifted people, people that had used and consecrated their spiritual gifts to the local churches that I have been privileged to pastor. Then I thought, well, maybe the most valuable player is the worker, the person that just literally rolls up their sleeves and every week goes to that Sunday school class, every week stands by that door and is an usher, and you, you can just count on them to always roll up their sleeves to help you make a difference. 
As I began to think about the pastor's most valuable player, I went through this entire list on my own and just with a legal pad would write down names and every time I would think of a person that would fill one of those categories, I would feel so blessed and I would, I would just thank God for the privilege of being their pastor. But I have come to the conclusion today as I share this lesson with you that the most valuable player for a pastor is not any of the people that I've described or the category, categories that they fit. But I believe the pastor's most viable player is the man or the woman that comes alongside that pastor to become their prayer partner. The person that lifts the leader in prayer. And it took me so many years in the pastorate to figure this out because in my first two churches, I prayed with people, I prayed for people, but I didn't have a prayer partner. In 1981, when I came to Skyline Wesleyan Church in San Diego as the senior pastor, I had only been there for a couple of months, and I realized one day I had an appointment with a person that was not a member of the church, a person that I did not even know. When I asked my secretary about this man named Bill Classen, she said, well, he's, he just wanted a 30-minute appointment with you. And I, I'll be honest with you, I was, I was a little bit ticked. I was just coming to the church, and I was trying to find out who the people were, and I was just trying to get my my hands around this beautiful congregation so that I could lead them properly. And here was a person going to enter my life for 30 minutes that I didn't even know. Well, Bill came into the room that day, and I sat down with him, and as a typical pastor would, I looked at him and I said, what can I do for you? I'll never forget as he looked at me that day and said, well, really nothing. It's, I didn't come for that reason. And I asked him why he came, and he said, well, he said, for a few years now, I've been praying that God would send a pastor to San Diego that would have a heart for the people and that would have an anointing over his life. And when I found out that you were coming to Skyline, I wanted to make this appointment because today I wanted to meet you, and today I wanted to let you know I'm going to pray for you. In fact, today I would like to lay my hands upon your head and pray over you. The Spirit of God melted my heart at that moment, as you can imagine, from a pastor who was going to be Mr. Answer Man to a pastor that was going to receive blessing and grace and care and prayer from another. That day we knelt in my office, and he laid hands on me, and we prayed together and we wept together. That day changed my life because I linked arms and went shoulder to shoulder with this man and together we developed a prayer partner ministry at Skyline that not only changed me and changed the prayer partners, but it changed the entire atmosphere and effectiveness of the church. And I tell you that story with great joy today. I want to introduce you to the person that changed my life, a lay person, a person that had a heart to intercede for a pastor, a person that desired to make a difference in the spiritual realm for a church and for a local pastor of a church. I introduce you today to my prayer partner, Bill Klassen, who has been my prayer partner for 15 years, walked together, laughed with me, cried with me, prayed with me, encouraged me, held me accountable. I tell you today that much of the fruitfulness of my ministry and much of the effectiveness of my church is a result of a layperson who decided to stay in the gap, to make up a difference, to put a hedge around his leader and come alongside and pray for and care for him. I introduce you today to my prayer partner for 15 years and my prayer partner for the next 15 years. 
Bill Claston. Would you welcome him and just let him know how delighted you are? You're my beloved Last year, uh, Max Licato came and spoke at our church at Skyline, and we spent a couple of days together. When I wrote my book, Partners in Prayer, and I was telling him about the project at the time, he said, John, he said, could I write the foreword? And I said, of course, I would love for you to write the foreword. In fact, since it was Max Licato, I said, I'll put your name on the front. I'm not proud. I just want to get this book out to pastors and the leading laymen. And in the foreword of my book, Max talks about what happened when he came to Skyline. He talks about how his life was changed forever. When the prayer partners of our church got around him and prayed for him, and he said, as I left and went back to my church in San Antonio, he said, I determined to have prayer partners, and he raised up 120 people to pray for him. And in the foreword, he talks about the, the growth of the church and how that after prayer partners had been established, they had broken their Sunday school attendance record twice, and they finished their year with the highest average ever in church. And they were over budget, and how that they added new staff members, and how new elders were brought into the church, and how they witnessed several, he says, significant physical healings. He said, I completed a very challenging book that I was writing on grace. He said, our church antagonism went down and our church unity went up. And he said, most significantly, we called our church to 40 days of prayer and fasting, inviting God to shine his face upon us. And God was honored in the prayers of his people. He said, more now than ever, I'm convinced that when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. At the end of 1996, as I was spending a few days in prayer concerning 1997, as we all do, I sensed God speaking to my heart again, saying, John, 1997 is to be a year where you mobilize as many prayer partners as possible for pastors across America. One of my lifetime ministry goals is to mobilize one million people to pray for pastors in this country. And the reason I have such a passion to do this is because the words of C.H. Spurgeon who says whenever God determines to do a great work he first sets his people to pray and I believe God wants to do a great work in your church pastor I believe God wants to do a great work in your community and if it's going to happen it will be based on a foundation of prayer the year 30 AD the city Jerusalem the evangelist was an untutored fisherman named Peter but the secret of that day of 3,000 people being converted was that they had spent time in prayer. You see, in Acts chapter 2, they prayed for 10 days. Peter preached for 10 minutes, and 3,000 people received Christ. Today, churches pray for 10 minutes, preach for 10 days, and three people get saved. The year of the 1700s, the place India, the missionary was William Carey. A shoe repairman, a cobbler, looking at a map of the world, left England. 
under great opposition and for 42 years labored in the country of India translating the Bible into 25 different Indian translations and became the father of missionaries. What was the secret of William Carey? He had a sister, a crippled sister, bedridden, that he wrote every day and shared with her his heartaches and his prayer concerns. And every day she interceded for William Carey. That was the secret of his great work. The year 1830, the city Rochester, New York. The evangelist Charles Finney in one year in Rochester with 10,000 population at that time, 1,000 people, 10% were saved. The secret, Charles Finney had a prayer partner named Abel Clary. And Mr. Clary continued, Finney wrote, as long as I did. And he did not leave the city until I had left. He never appeared in public, but he gave himself wholly to prayer for my ministry. The year 1872, the city is London. The evangelist is an obscure YMCA worker named D.L. Moody. The results of him being at the local church where 400 people were converted in just a couple of days, and the secret was another crippled lady by the name of Marianne Adlard, who had read a clipping about Moody's ministry in Chicago and prayed that God would send him to their church and interceded for him while they were there. The year 1934, the place Charlotte, North Carolina, the evangelist was a southern revivalist named Mordecai Ham. The results, the city of Charlotte was deeply moved, and a farmer's son named Billy Graham was converted. And several businessmen, the secret of that great revival, including Billy Graham's father, spent a day in prayer at the Graham farm that God would touch their city, their state, and their world. Little did they know, praying on the Graham farm, that Billy would be saved and it would literally change the world. The year 1949, the place Los Angeles, California, the evangelist now Billy Graham, the results in an extended campaign that resulted into mass evangelism. And the secret, Billy Graham said, the only difference between that crusade and all others that I had held up to that time was that there was more prayer. The year 1984, the place again, Los Angeles, the event, the Olympics. 1,600 churches came together to pray for God's blessing to be upon their city during this important time when the world's eyes would be upon it. John Dawson in his book says, one of my friends in the police academy program visited, he said, visit, visited the county morgue shortly after the Olympics. And a coroner said that normally the morgue receives 78 bodies per day, including many who are victims of murder. And my friend asked, have you ever seen a radical change in these statistics? The coroner gave an exciting answer. Yes, he said, during the two weeks of the Olympic Games, there were no murders. When I, de when I teach and develop leaders and churches, I share with them that leadership determines the direction of the church and structure determines the size of the church and relationships determine the morale of the church and personnel will determine the potential of the church, but prayer will determine the effectiveness of the church. I want to share with you today five reasons why leaders need prayer. The setting is Exodus chapter 17, the story of Moses and the battle against the Amalekites. Reason number one that leaders need prayer, godly leaders come under attack. We all understand that. In fact, Satan watches for the right time to attack Christian leaders. And usually he attacks Christian leaders either after victory or when they become physically tired. The story in Exodus chapter 17, if you recall, 
is the wandering of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And in their wandering in the wilderness, they begin to complain because there's no water to drink. And I just pick up a few of the phrases in the first part of this chapter. Listen carefully. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people tested them, thirsted for water and grumbled against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to these people? A little more and they will stone me. Let me stop just for a moment. Leader, uh, Moses was a great leader. Moses was tired, weary, leading these Jewish people around in circles in the wilderness. If you look and study the life of Moses, you'll see that a lot of times as a leader, he got ticked at the people. You'll see also, if you study the, study the story, a lot of times God got ticked at the people. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what would happen if God and Moses ever got ticked on the same day? When you lead, there's an awful lot of attack. And you know the story. God gave him instructions of how to get water. But in that verse 7 it says, he, named, he renamed the place. And he renamed the place because the people were quarreling and because they tested the Lord, saying and asking the question, is the Lord among us or not? Now, that's in verse 7. Note verse 8. Mark this. Then the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. When did the attack come on the children of Israel? After much quarreling, after much fussing and much fighting, when they were tired. It reminds me of our Lord when he was tempted in the wilderness. And after the tempter left him, the Bible says that he left him until another opportune time. You see, the evil one knows when to attack the church and the Christian leaders, and we should surround them with prayer because they are constantly coming under attack. Secondly, we need to pray for our pastor and our leaders because godly leaders cannot win the battle alone. They cannot win the battle by themselves. In verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. One of the mistakes I have found that we as pastors make is there are times when we overestimate our value. We believe that we're Mr. Answer Man and Mr. Country Doctor and we can take care of all the needs. Sometimes we even have a feeling that we're indispensable. There's a poem that I have kept for many years that helps me to remind myself that I'm not. The poem reads this way, Sometimes when you're feeling important and sometimes when your ego is in bloom. Sometimes when you take it for granted that you're the best qualified in the room. Sometimes when you feel that you're going would leave an unfillable hole, just follow this simple instruction and see how it humbles your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Pull it out of the hole that, and uh, pull it out in the hole that's remaining is the measure of how much you'll be missed. <laughs> you may splash all you please when you enter. You can stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find in a minute that it looks quite the same as before. The moral of this quaint example is to do just the best that you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there's no indispensable man. And there are times as pastors, we are lone rangers. And we make the mistake of overestimating our value, and sometimes we make the mistake of underestimating the potential and the value of lay people in the pew. I share often with pastors that there is gold in them, our pews. 
And the gold is the fact that there are lay people who want to pray for their pastor and come alongside of their pastor to make a difference. I know what it did for me. I know what it can do for you. The third reason that pastors need prayer partners is because godly leaders are to inspire and influence the people. And if we're to inspire and influence the people, we're going to need people, prayer partners, to come alongside of us. Listen to these words in this story. Tomorrow, Moses said, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Why did Moses climb on top of that hill? Two reasons. He climbed up on top of that people so that he on the top of that hill so he could see the people and off and have insight. Leaders need to back off from their congregation to look where they are. And, and he climbed on top of the hill so that he could have insight concerning the battle. But the second reason he climbed on top of that hill was to offer inspiration. For as his arms would be stretched towards heaven, the children of Israel and, and the battle and Joshua would look up and see their leader interceding. You see, Moses understood that leadership is influence. And the greatest motivational principle you and I will ever understand is that people do what people see. And the prayer partners at Skyline, I would bring them aside and I would say to them, we have a twofold goal as prayer partners. One is for us to see Skyline clearly so we can pray for it effectively. We've got to get up on the hill and look at our church and look at the needs and the hurts and the questions and the people. But the second reason for being a prayer partner is for inspiration so that Skyline can see us clearly and they can know that we're praying and standing in the gap. The fourth reason that we need to pray for our pastor and leaders is that godly leaders are human. For in this story we find the Bible teaches us that Moses had to drop his hands to his side because his hands became heavy. He wanted to keep his hands up, but he couldn't. He didn't have the physical stamina, the physical strength to do it. My observations in working with pastors over the last several years is that pastors' duties sometimes be, just get beyond human strength. We have more to do than we can possibly do it. We're like the Church of Acts who had to get some laymen to take care of the widows in the church because oh, the job just gets too heavy. And then my observation also about pastors is that our responsibilities are exceedingly heavy. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 13, verse 17, their work is to watch over your souls and God will judge them on how well they do this. I cannot think of a man or woman in a leadership position in the church who relishes that type of a responsibility. In my book, I quote some statistics taken from the Church Growth Institute at Fuller. And it talks about what pastors grow through and the humanness of pastors. Listen to these. 90% 90, 90 of the pastors work more than 46 hours a week. 80% believe pastoral ministry has affected their families negatively. 33% say that being in the ministry is an outright hazard to their family. 75% report a significant stress-related crisis at least one time in their ministry. 50% feel that they are unable to meet the needs of the job, and 90% feel that they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. Seventy percent say that they have a lower self-image than when they started in their ministry. 
and 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 33% confess of having been involved in some inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in the church. And 70%, 70% do not have someone that they consider to be a close friend. When I read those stats, I ask myself, what would happen if the pastors that I read about had a prayer partner? What would happen if they would have a Bill Classen to pray for them? Or a Fred Rao? Or a Doug or Sherry Bennett? Or a Dick Housem that prays every day for me to keep morally pure? Or a Mike Mahler too, literally puts a coin in the bottom of his shoes so as he walks around working that day, as he feels the coin, it reminds him to pray for me. What would have happened in America if every pastor, every man and woman in leadership positions would have a lay person come alongside of them as Bill has me and say to them, I love you and I care for you and I'm going to pray over you and I'm going to intercede for you. Listen to me, friends. Bill Classen prays for me more than I pray for myself. And this morning in the early hour in my hotel room as I was talking to God about our time together, I said, God, it would be so wonderful today with so many wonderful Christian leaders gathered together at this beautiful conference. It would be wonderful if every pastor would have it laid upon his or her heart to go back to their city and to their church and to find a prayer partner to come alongside. And it would be so wonderful for the lay people here if they would say, I'm going to stand in the gap and I'm going to make a difference. The fifth reason, the fifth reason that pastors need prayer partners is because godly leaders plus prayer partners equals victory. The moment that the prayer partners come around the godly leader it makes an incredible difference. Listen to these words. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and they set him on it. And Aaron and Hur, one on one side and one on the other side, held his hands up so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. You see, Moses had the privilege of having two prayer partners, Aaron and Hur, and they saw the need. They seized the moment, and together they shared the victory. I sat down on my legal pad, and I wrote down what I would consider to be the benefits of being a prayer partner. The reason that I wrote that down is because Bill wrote me a letter recently, right after Thanksgiving. And I want to read it to you because I want you to see that not only does the pastor benefit by having prayer partners, but so does the laity and so does the church. In fact, in leadership I say that every relationship ought to be win-win, but when you get prayer partners, it's not win-win. It's win-win-win-win. It's the pastor wins, the layman wins, the church wins, and the kingdom of God wins. And here's a letter from Bill. Dear John, on Thanksgiving Day this year I was talking to the Lord about while all that I was thankful for, and that made me think of you. What a wonderful relationship we've had. For 15 years, I've stood in the gap for you and taken your place. 
I've experienced what you've experienced. I've shared your joy as well as your grief. In my heart, it's difficult to separate the two of us. I've always loved our Sunday mornings together. It always blesses me to be close to you. And Bill, I won't stop there just saying, it blesses me to have you up here with me today. It blesses me to have you close to me today. But more than that, you've given me the opportunity to be obedient to the heavenly vision that God has given me, for you have given me and my wife, Marianne, the opportunity to help you build the church God's way. And that's been our most fulfilling ministry. You've elevated us from partners in prayer to partners in ministry. John, I can't help wishing that every senior pastor could taste a relationship like ours. They would never be the same. And as for me, John, I'm enlisting for another 15 years. The greatest blessings are yet to come. Your partner. And I tell you, Bill, I take that enlistment. Raise your right hand, my friend. I take that. I want you with me for another 15 years. <laughs> I wrote down the benefits of being a prayer partner, and I'm going to read them quickly. You won't even be able to take notes, but you can always get the tape. Listen to the benefits of being a prayer partner. Number one, shared ownership of the ministry. Two, people who love and support you. Three, spiritual protection on a continual basis. Four, high morale and encouragement. Five, defenders and builders of your vision. Six, increased wisdom from God. Seven, supernatural resources, whether it's people, money, or ideas. Eight, open doors for new opportunities. Nine, spiritual renewal. And ten, the multiplying of the leader's fruitfulness. If one will put a thousand to flight, two will put ten thousand to flight. Let me give you, in the close of this message, in a very practical term, how do we find a prayer partner? Let me share with you my journey, number one. Understand the value of a person who prays for you. Understand that they are your most valuable player. Understand the value of an individual, a man or a woman, who comes along and literally commits their life to praying and interceding for you and for your leadership and for your ministry and the load that you carry. Number two, ask God to give you a prayer partner. I began asking God to give Bill and me other prayer partners in the church, and it went from 1 to 7 to 31 to 120. And every day I ask God to send winners. And I would encourage you to pray for one prayer partner in the beginning, but when you find that one, together you covenant to pray for seven so you have one to cover you every day of the week. Number three, I would encourage you, to read this book entitled Partners in Prayer because it will help you to know how to develop the prayer partner ministry. And by the way, I had this book by Thomas Nelson be put in paperback so it would be inexpensive. And we decided that we are so committed to getting prayer partners, we sell this book only at cost. For $5, you can have this book. We sell this book at cost because what we want more than life itself is to get this book into a million people's hands so that they can be prayer partners. I would encourage you, Pastor, go get one for yourself. Get one for five or six people you want to have prayer partners and put it in their hand and say, let's read it together, let's commit ourselves together to be prayer partners. Number four, ask your prayer partner to come alongside of you. 
When you ask your prayer partner to come alongside of you, be real to them, be transparent, be open with them, share your hurts, share your questions, share your dreams with them. And by the way, when I went looking for prayer partners, I had three lists that I, I went after. I had what I called the hot list. The hot list were the old timers in the church that had been walking with God for a whole long time and they loved God and they knew God and they interceded and they knew what prayer was all about. I went and got some old timers. Some of them were kind of on the shelf and felt that maybe they didn't have an important place in the church and I got them. I said, hey, you've got an important place. You pray and pray for me. I had old timers been walking with God for 60 years become prayer partners of mine. I mean, when they get on their knees, they just begin to pray and God looks down and says, yes, what do you need? When I get on my knees, I've got to introduce myself. So go after that hot list. Go after the, the men and the women of God in your church that have been walking with God for a long time. The second group was what I called my hit list. They were the nominal Christians. I would pick two or three of them to come alongside just to get them close to the fire so they'd get hot themselves. It was awesome what began to happen. I'd have, I'd have spouses call me and say, Pastor, what have you done to my husband? My goodness, we never prayed together, and now all of a sudden we're praying together. So, so find two or three that just are nominal, that just need to get that, the hot poker near the fire to get some of that heat in their life so spiritually they can, they can be red hot for God. And then thirdly, I had, what I, I had what I called the hope list. And the hope list were people in the church that had leadership potential. And I would, I would ask them to be prayer partners with me for a year. Watch this. I would, I would pray with them for a year, and I would put them on what I call my farm team, my spiritual farm team, and we would pray together and dream together and, and intercede together and, and, and believe together. And as they spiritually got on fire, then I would bring them into leadership positions because then I knew I not only had people with leadership potential, but I also had people with spiritual qualifications. Number five, give your new prayer partners the book Partner in Prayer. Come alongside them and say, I've got a book for you. I want you to read it. This will tell you how to pray for me. This will tell you how I'm going to pray for you. This will set it up in our church so that we can pray together. Number six, take your prayer partners on a spiritual journey with you. What you do is you gather your prayer partners around, and that's what we would do on Sunday morning. They would come to the church before anybody would be there, and for 30 minutes they would pray throughout the congregation, laying hands on the pews asking God just to cover the whole auditorium so that when people came, they could feel the presence of God. And then at 8 o'clock in the morning, they would come to my office area. And I would go out and I would share with them what I wanted to see God do that day. And I would share my requests and my dreams that day. And then I would kneel and they'd lay hands on me and they'd pray for me. And then they would go to the upper room and they would pray during the service. Every service that I preached for 14 years, and we had four services on Sunday morning, Every service, I'd have prayer partners interceding and praying and asking God to, to make a difference in that church. But take them with you. I remember Pete Wagner came down one weekend to, to see our prayer partner ministry. It was when he first was writing on prayer. And he came to me at lunch after he and Doris and Margaret and I sat down having lunch. And he said, John, I found the secret to the prayer partner ministry at the church. Now, if you know Pete Wagner, you know he's, he's, so, he's such, got such a great mind. He just analyzes everything. I just lead and he analyzes. And he said, John, I figured it out. He said, when you met with your prayer partners this morning for prayer, you shared with them the, how God was answering prayer and, and the things that God was doing in the church. And he said, John, I just wanted you to know. He said, I watched those men and I watched your prayer partners and as you shared with them how God was answering prayer, it was contagious. And then he said that great statement to me, the greatest motivator to pray is answered prayer. And he said, you take them with you on the journey and share with them the success.
That brings me to a question as I close this message this morning. The question is, who's responsible for the success in a leader's ministry? How does God apportion the credit? 1 Samuel chapter 30 verse 24 tells us how the credit will be apportioned. I've often thought when you get to heaven, I wonder how the rewards are going to be given out. And I wonder how everybody is going to be assessed of what they did. And, and I just have always wondered that. But 1 Samuel tells me, listen to this, chapter 30, verse 24, listen to these words. The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. I thought of the blessings of God on my ministry build, and I thought of how he's blessed the conferences, and he's blessed me across the country. And I want to tell you something, Bill. When we get to heaven, I promise you, you and the other prayer partners, the reward is going to be as much, if not more, yours than mine. And the Apostle Paul knew that. That's why he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he said, through your faithful prayers... And the generous response of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in my life, everything he wants me to do and wants to do through me will be done. When I left the church as senior pastor at Skyline in the summer of 1995, I gathered for the last time with my prayer partners. And I felt like the Apostle Paul when he said goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, as we hugged and prayed together that last time before I would go out and speak to the stadium crowd and say goodbye to them and pray over them and love them. And I can tell you in my ministry, the fondest memories I have are memories of prayer with men and women who stood in the gap for me. I would like to ask a question this morning in closing. How many of you listening to this message, either as a lay person or a pastor, would just raise your hand up high and say, Hey, John, today I think I understand that the most viable player that a leader will ever have is a person that will walk alongside of him or her and pray for them. And I wonder how many of you would raise your hand up real high and say, Today I'm going to make a commitment to either find a prayer partner or to be a prayer partner. And you'd raise your hand up high, signifying unto me and others that you're going to go back and make a difference. Would you raise your hand up? I want to be a prayer partner. I'm going to go find one. Lord Jesus, you see all the hands that are raised, literally hundreds and hundreds of lay people and pastors. And I stand with them now. And I pray for them. For the pastor, I pray that you will find or help him or her Go back to the church and find that lay person who has a heart to intercede for their pastor. For lay people who listen to this message, I would pray today that you would move upon their heart to invest their life in something that is eternal, that counts. And that is coming alongside a man or a woman of God, a leader, and standing in the gap and shoulder to shoulder, praying and making up the difference. God, I pray for the local church across America. 
I pray for pastors who are tired, weary, discouraged, and they need a brother and a sister to help make up the difference. I pray, God, that beginning today across America, there will be a prayer movement of lay people praying for their pastor that will change the pastor's life, the church's life, the community's life, and eventually, God, the life of America. I ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you. It has been a joy for the last several minutes to share with you my heart about the pastor's most valuable player. And many of you who have listened to this message, your heart has kind of beat a little faster as you've heard me talk about the fact that your pastor loves you and needs your prayer. For some of you, I want to challenge you right now to take the card that has been passed out to you. It's a prayer partner recruitment card. And as you look at that, I would encourage you to, to sign up to be a prayer partner for the next 12 months for your pastor. Now, let me tell you what it will do for you. It will give you a greater love and appreciation for your pastor. It will develop your spiritual life. And it will give you a sense of closeness to your church and to your pastor that perhaps you've never felt before. And for your pastor or pastors on the staff, let me tell you what it will do for them. <laughs> They'll preach better on Sunday morning. They'll be encouraged by your prayers. Their ministry will go to a whole new level. One of my favorite thoughts about all of God's Word is where it talks in the Old Testament about the fact that when one person goes to battle, the people that stay behind, that hold the supplies, they will receive as much reward as the person in battle. As you know, your pastor is in a battle. And you as a prayer partner are holding the supplies for him or for her. I want to encourage you that as you do that, the reward that you receive will be as great as your pastor's reward because you are a team, you're partners together, making a difference in your local church. I'm excited. So I encourage you today, become a prayer partner with your pastor. It'll make a difference in your life. It'll make a difference in your pastor's life. It'll make a difference in your church and in your community. God bless you as you make this important decision.